And I've discovered that if you do that steadily, it really accumulates. And it accumulates at such a rapid, uh, to such a rapid extent that other people think that you must be living in a frenzied manner when you're not. Right. You're just diligently plodding away. Welcome to episode 78 of Kyperian Commentary. I'm your host, Yuri Brito. On this episode, we welcome pastor and author Douglas Wilson. Doug is the author of numerous books. I've always been amazed at his productivity, and now I actually have the joy of seeing a bit of his theology in practice when it comes to the topic of productivity. And as always, Doug is very clever in his titles. This work, just published by Canon Press, is entitled Productivity. A Practical Theology of Work and Wealth. Productivity is productivity over time, Doug says. In other words, we can be productive for a season, but productivity properly distributes time wisely. A little 15 minutes here, a little 15 minutes there, and suddenly you have something significant produced over time. What a great little book that I encourage you to purchase. It was a real delight to have Doug on the show, and I hope you enjoy our brief conversation. Again, productivity. A Practical Theology of Work and Wealth, published by Canon Press. Okay, this comes out again in your book, and one of your gifts, I think, is just distinguishing categories and terminologies. And there was a very especially salient part of your book where you distinguish between producing as machines and producing to bear good fruit. Again, another distinction, how do you practically distinguish between the two? One of the distinctions that you can make between a machine and a fruit tree, both of them productive, right? Mm -hmm. You've got this machine that makes widgets uh, and you've got this fruit tree that bears apples. Both of them are in a manner of speaking machines, right? They're both making something, but with the machine, you can, with with the exception of some newer machines, with a machine, you can understand all the variables. You can really comprehend all the inputs tweak this knob, you pull that lever, you do the other thing, and out comes the widget, right? When you're when you're looking at a tree, a fruit-bearing tree, only God knows the variables. You can know some of the main ones. It needs, uh, the, the fruit tree needs uh, fertilizer, it needs water, you know, you, you can learn some things, but there are so many more things going on in the health in the health of a fruit tree, that you simply have to trust God. You have to do what you know uh, to take care of the tree. At the same time, you have to do it in a way that trusts God for all the things that are going on that you don't know. Right? And and so farmers are in a position to trust God. Right? I I everything I'm doing, I work I work like a dog. But unless water falls out of the sky, that I and I have no control over that. Uh, I'm not going to have a crop. This is this is something that came up in the uh, one of the books I read by Eugene Peterson, where he took the time to excoriate how often pastors sort of pat themselves in the back for being quote busy, and, and often what they mean is they're functioning in this mechanical fashion. They're doing a kind of work. You talk about this in your book. They're doing a kind of work that multiplies work. So. I'm asking you, I guess, how, how do you begin to diminish, maybe even your pastoral experience, how do you begin to diminish the temptation to use work to multiply work in our lives? Yeah, yeah. Um, in fact, when um, when Paul at the end of Thessalonians is talking about, um, uh, you know, shunning the busybody, mm-hmm. uh, 
the busybody is lazy, but he's the one, everybody else is digging the hole. He's the one bustling around the edges with a shovel. You know, right? Right. Um, he's busy and he's involved he, and he looks active, but he's not actually doing work. Um, and a lot of pastors find themselves swept up into make work functions uh, um, that look busy. It looks hectic and it's, and it's draining, but it's not mm-hmm. the same thing as being tired, <laughs> right? You're, you're sapping your strength instead of, um, instead of employing your strength. You should right. go to, you should go to bed tired. That, that's not the, you know, of course, but you should not go to bed fried. Mm. Yeah, that's a helpful distinction. So how do you, can you give me some examples of perhaps how you in the past multiplied work, at least in, from my perspective, the way I would um, apply that would be that um, there are certain things that I don't need to do. If somebody, if I have five people sending me questions and wanted to have a phone conversation with me uh, in the past, I would gladly take them as a, a as a way of, of adding to my resume of work. This is just what I do. But as you grow older, I think you begin to distinguish things and realize that certain things don't carry the same level of importance, right? Right. Well, as sometimes something comes to you and your reaction ought to be, you know, not my circus, not my monkeys. <laughs> right. <laughs> and Proverbs talks about, you know, the a person who takes a passing dog by the ears is uh, he's just generating trouble for himself. Another kind of uh, problem is the kind of problem that Jethro helped Moses with. It is your circus. Uh, these are your monkeys, but you've got helpers. You've got people that you need to delegate to. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this is where pastoral leadership needs to come in, uh, where you, as Jethro said, you know, Moses, you're going to blow up here. If you keep, if you keep doing this, if you, if you keep taking this on yourself, uh, we're going to find a little mosaic crater where Moses used to be. There are times when we ought to just pass, it, let it pass us by, because it's not our not our responsibility. Other times it is our responsibility, and then you have to decide: is this my responsibility to do or to hand off? Do, do I delegate this or do I do it myself? Yeah, when Paul when Paul establishes sort of that principle of you know those who when you you work so that you can eat. There's kind of a, a telos to the work. But as you mentioned the book, not all work is created equal. There is a kind of work that gives you a hunger and desire to eat and to be satisfied. But there's also a kind of work that eating, that when you finally get to eat, it's not as enjoyable. And I, I see that kind of connection there, that the right kind of work that bears good fruit allows you to enjoy those labors in the more uh, in a more beautiful and Christian way than the kind of work that is just done for the sake of work. Yes. Hunger is the best seasoning, somebody said. The, if, you've, if you've spent a day doing physical labor, yard work or that sort of thing, certain ordinary foods can taste a whole lot sweeter be, mm. because you've been doing what you ought to have been doing. Yeah, very good. Doug, this may come as a shock to you, but you have quite a presence of social media and uh, in your uh, your last chapter, which I, I found uh, one of the most helpful ones, you talk about the lordship of Jesus over social media, Twitter, Facebook, et cetera. And you mentioned that we we should be where God's people are. We And if God's people is in a particular platform, 
we should be there exalting Jesus' lordship and um, not acting as some do, uh, acting as if Jesus is neutral over the use of social media. Uh, but yet, you may have noticed, there are all sorts of uh, social media strife, sometimes brought about the evangelical schism squad, let's call them. Are, are there any principles that you would have to guide the Christian who agrees with your proposition that Jesus is Lord over social media, but is unsure how to go about it because, you know, in the past he probably offended Sister Betsy with a negative tweet about President Trump. And so he's had some bad experiences. He's trying out to, he's matured, he's grown from the experience, and now he wants to go back to that platform. How would you direct that young person? One of the things I would say is that you have to look past your screen because what happens is, um, yeah, and you have to understand what's actually going on with social media. So social media did not create the concept of trolls. Trolls mm -hmm. lived under bridges long before they inhabited the internet. <laughs> and so what you want to do is, you know, if I tweet something or if I say something on social media and I get a, you know, some sort of snark fest back, mm -hmm. an answer to this jab occurs to me. One of the things I'm going to do is I'm going to click on this profile and I've, I did this the, just the other day and to find out how many, how influential this person was. In other mm. words, was this a big troll or a little troll? Right? <laughs> yeah. Um, and it was a little troll. He had one follower. And, <laughs> and so if I had, an, basically, if I had answered that jab, if I was just looking at my screen and I flattened this guy with one follower and made him equivalent to someone with 10,000 followers. Mm -hmm. What I'm doing is I'm not looking past the my computer screen. I'm and that means I'm not seeing people behind all this. Mm -hmm. Right? There's a certain kind of person who doesn't see authors, he only sees books. Mm. He, uh, they don't see people writing letters, they only see the letters themselves. It's the same with email. It's the same with social media. It's the same with tweets. So if I if I react to this guy with one follower and answer him, I've just given him the biggest microphone in the world mm. that he's ever had. It's mm -hmm. I've he's fallen into a chocolate pie as far as he's concerned. Mm -hmm. But uh, if somebody uh, says something that is slanderous and damaging to the ministry, and I click on it. And the guy is an influential, he's a writer for the Associated Press or something. And he's got lots of connections and a lot of people are listening to him. This is something that I need to answer. And, and you look to the scripture for guidance on this. Did, did the Apostle Paul ever answer accusations? Yes. Right? Uh, he, down to pulling in Galatians, down to pulling out his book, uh, uh, boarding passes to prove that he how many times he'd been to Jerusalem, right? Some people are saying this, and this is how I'd reply. So basically, you want to determine if the game is worth the candle, and yeah. you do that yeah. by by seeing people, by seeing the people involved. That's great, and I think this, this following up on that, there are times in which we are technically right but not a blessing to others. And I think you mentioned this somewhere in your book. How do we begin to at least restore our sense of purpose and production as a benediction to the people who, who follow us on social media 
rather than a malediction. And so there, there's so much that we do and produce, and sometimes we don't keep these distinctions in mind. How do we begin to think through that process? Yeah, something I, something I learned from my dad, he always used to, he loved to say, there's a deeper right than being right. Mm. There's a deeper right than being right. And if somebody, um, if somebody says something and I'm, and it's a temptation for me to engage, I, I feel, you know, something rising up in my throat. Um, Galatians 6.1 says, if a brother's overtaken in a trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. So you notice this when you're disciplining kids, your kids, right? When, yeah. Whenever you're motivated to discipline them, you're not qualified to discipline them. Mm-hmm. And when you're qualified to discipline them, you're not motivated, <laughs> right? Uh, if you lose your temper, if you lose your temper, you're motivated, but the motivation is carnal. It's not you're re, you're reacting, not acting. And so that that's what I would say. You you always want to act, never react. Check your own heart, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. And because you could be right on the merits of the argument, and be totally wrong in 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 how you engaged. Mm. You talk about the the temptations that people have when it comes to productivity, and you use these two words to define these two temptations, intensity and extension. And intensity, you say, is manifested when the deadline approaches and the manager of the project gets some lighter fluid, douses his hair with it, and sets it ablaze and runs around in tight little circles. And extension is that kind of working late. And that's the, the language that I think so many of us use in our culture uh, we need to work late, which obviously all these temptations offers us a, an opportunity to neglect the essential. Doug, what I, what I want to do here as we close, I want you to kind of walk me through a little bit of the way in which um, you live and how you apply these little principles. Because I, I saw this in the, one of the chapters you wrote, and apparently you've been doing this for a long time because these are some of the recollections your daughter writes in the forward. Um, tell me, walk through a little bit of some of the habits you have that allow you to avoid these two extremes of intensity and extension. Okay, so um, intensity, uh, the, you avoid the temptations of surprise deadlines or deadlines coming up on you. Can't do it perfectly, but basically, if I agree to, let's say I agree to do a book review for mm-hmm. a publication, um, what I do is I look at the deadline uh, what's the deadline? I look at the size of the book, count the pages, do a basic math problem, give myself a week to write the book review, and then say, all right, how many pages a day do I have to read in order to have this book read by the time by the time I need to start writing? Let's say it's 10 pages a day. Yeah. So 10 pages a day is probably on the hefty end of something like that. Mm-hmm. Okay, but it's not it's not an insurmountable burden. It's just 10, 15 minutes. Right. All all I have to do is carve out of my day that amount of time. And if I chip away at that, then I then I don't find myself finding a note on my desk that says, oh, this is due tomorrow. You know, and then you then you have that intensity reaction. And I'm not saying I've never had that, you know. I have been known to find things on my desk, but I try to avoid. I try to avoid that. So I try to have uh, plenty of lead time, and then I try to carve it up into bite-sized chunks between now and 
that time. Okay, the extensive the extensive uh, temptation. People who are working late all the time either have slave driver bosses or they're trying to communicate falsely to all the other coworkers that they know what they're doing or that they're extremely dedicated. But someone who's constantly having to spend twice the amount of time on a project that other people are doing in half that time is demonstrating, they're demonstrating commitment, but they're not demonstrating that they're working on it intelligently. So one of the things I, I established as a pattern in, I was first married, um, I, I go home at five. So, and that's, you know, sometimes it's 520 and, you know, that sort of thing. But I, basically, I want to, I, I wanted when my, my kids were little, I wanted to be a dad who was there, who was home for dinner every night. And, uh, and then I made a commitment uh, together with my wife that be, as a pastor, I had evening events. So, so I put, and I was in a band at the time. So we, I put a limit of no more than three nights a week with some event a Bible study or something like that. And then wherever possible, I'd want to have that event in our home. Or when our kids got older, it one of the events was leading a high school Bible study that my kids were involved in so that it, I, I went there with my kids. Basically, you put fences or borders around your family, your family time, uh, not because you're committed to leisure, but because you're, again, you're committed to your people. Oh, oh, the other thing is, let's say I had a, a pressing thing that I really needed to get done. I didn't, ro- I wanted to avoid robbing my family. So if I really have to get this done, then get up at five. You, you know, uh, if you're, if the time you're taking for this emergency is 5 a.m., you, you're not robbing your people in order to get this done. You're not saying, oh, I didn't plan ahead, so I'm going to take it from you. You're going to take it away from your own sleep time, and instead of working late, get up early. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Do you do you take time uh, before the week begins, Doug, to sort of plan how the week unfolds, or um, how does that work for you? Um, I I kind of have I, I don't have a weekly planning session of how the week's going to go because I'd say a good eighty percent of my week is already baked in every right. every week. Every week is roughly the same, and then I, all I have to do is fit in the odd pieces where there's an opening. Yeah, yeah. Well, Doug, I have a, a lot more questions, but uh, your book already answers most of them. I, I really hope our listeners at Kyperion, who are already uh, predisposed to love this kind of uh, theology, will uh, pick up a copy of uh, Productivity, A Practical Theology of Work and Wealth by Pastor Douglas Wilson, published by Canon Press. Doug, as always, thanks for your time, my brother. Oh, great to be with you. Thank you.